0: At first glance, our passage today in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, uh, it it just looks like a past historical issue. It's not really an issue for us. It might be relevant to some of the world religions today, but for most of us here, we don't look at what we eat and think about its spiritual impact on us. You know, we might be worried about the caloric intake. We might be worried that like the supersize might be gluttony, but you know, religious purity... That's not even really on our radar. But this passage in particular is declaring something very important about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And remember, this is the heart of Mark's gospel. He wants us to know the real Jesus, what he really said and what he really did. And so while this looks like it's all about food and ancient issues, it's not. The big idea this morning is that the darker issues of life Don't start outside of us, but inside of us. And only Jesus can truly clean us from the inside out. So, open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, The things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is a bit of a a Galileo moment. You know, the 1600s, you know, uh, the geocentric view of the world was that everything revolved around the earth. And how could you not love this idea? How could you not love the idea that you are the center of the universe and that everything revolves around you? Uh, And, you know, from the perspective of an earthbound observer, it makes sense. Like, we can't feel the earth rotating at 1,675 kilometers an hour. Uh, But let's try to sympathize for a moment with the people who lived, understanding that the world was... You know, the center of the universe, the geocentric model. Try to put yourself in their shoes. They're just trusting what the authorities are telling them. And the authority of their day truly was the Catholic Church. And and they're showing them scriptures that support this model. They're quoting uh, scientists that they're in discussions with. And so the authorities are telling you the earth is at the center of everything. And everything revolves around us and we're really important. But then in 1609, Galileo comes around and he says, nope the earth revolves around the sun and I have proof. Uh, But six years later, he's subject to an inquest by the Catholic Church and the authorities win and Galileo is forced to recant. Uh, We all know this. uh, And we've known for quite some time that he was right. But try to imagine how hard it would have been to come to terms with his proposal, especially before the controversy was resolved. Who do you believe? How does the universe really operate? If you trust Galileo, We're at the center of the universe. Uh, No longer. We are actually really, 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 really small. What does it say about God's relationship to us? What does it say about the Catholic Church? Can we trust what the authorities are telling us? It's a massive perspective change, but it's also an authority change. Indeed, from that point on in history, you can begin to see a shift of authority that science slowly becomes the authoritative interpreter of the universe, not the Catholic Church. And similar shifts are taking place in our passage today. It's a Galileo moment. And we'd do well to listen to Galileo's advice. He said, all truths are easy to understand once they're discovered. The point is to discover them. Jesus, he's proposing a radically different theory of how things work. He uncovers truth for us, and it undermines the existing authorities of his day. And it's not a private affair. It's a public affair. This is a public event. People are listening, and if he's right, it's a fundamental shift in their understanding of their place in the world and how things work. So Mark writes in verse 14, Jesus called the people to him again. We have to remember this is an ongoing conversation that is building upon the previous 13 verses where Jesus challenged the Pharisees and their view of Scripture. And it says, you guys put your traditions above Scripture. You obey the commandments of man as if they're from God. Your entire system is flawed and your authority is wrong. You know, they kept to uh, rules that God never prescribed so that they could feel good about themselves. And then rules that God actually asked them to keep, they came up with rules that could justify breaking them so they wouldn't feel guilty. Their traditions gave them no guilt with false assurance. And now Jesus, he's taking it a step further. He says, not only is your authority untrustworthy, but your entire system is based on, upon a faulty understanding of how things work. And here's the re- redefining idea. Jesus says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Defilement doesn't happen from the outside in, but the inside out. And some of us right now might be thinking, like, really? Like, that seems pretty... Obvious At our point in history, we live, you know, in the past century, the birth of psychology and psychiatry and the like. We know that behavioral issues start in here and they can affect us from the inside out. It's old news. But this declaration, it creates an irreparable fracture in the Pharisees' system. Because they've been applying the wrong solution to a misdiagnosed problem. They've been living in a geocentric world when it's really a heliocentric reality. And they believe that defilement, it actually happens from the outside in. Therefore, you can deal with it from the outside in. Now look, they're not entirely off base with this. Sometimes we can deal with our hearts from the outside in. Physical actions can help aid our inner reality. Why do people fast? It's an outside in action. To, to become aware of their dependency and need for God. Why do we kneel to confess sin? It aids us in helping our hearts become tried. Why do we clap after hearing words of forgiveness? To repent of being cool. Uh, no, to develop, you know, joy in the gospel. Why do people lift their hands when they sing to God? You know, the posture uh, helps open them to an experience with God. The The outer action, though, does not assure an inner reality will follow. It's just an aid to open us up to a transformation in our inner realities. So with all the ancient washings, all the effort to always being clean from dirt and disease and this off-limit food, it was a visual aid. It was a physical thing that enabled people to recognize the being of spiritual uncleanliness. So by all the effort to be clean on the outside, it was to help you realize the need to be cleaned on the inside. But the problem was that the Pharisees' traditions went on to say that spiritual defilement was just an outside issue. They distorted the intent of the law to the point that they believed that if you stayed clean on the outside, if you did all the right things on the outside, therefore on the inside, you were also clean. But here's the thing, staying ritualistically clean didn't mean you were undefiled before God. It simply meant that you were prepared to enter into the presence of God so that God himself could deal with your inner uncleanliness. It was preparation for inner cleansing that only God could perform. So the outer cleansing actually did nothing for your inner reality. And so in contrast to the Pharisees, Jesus says, the things that come out of a person, the things that they do, that's what defiles them. But I don't want to miss a point of agreement here between Jesus and the Pharisees. He agrees with them that we're spiritually unclean and morally defiled. He agrees that we are unfit for the presence of God and that it needs to be dealt with. The question is, do we share that point of agreement with him? Can we go that far? Look at verses 20 through 23. 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a person, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. You see, at this point, we might want to soften what Jesus is actually saying. He's just saying nobody's perfect. But that's not what he's saying. He says you're evil. Evil comes out of your heart. And so perhaps we choose then to ignore passages like this from Jesus because, you know, this isn't Jesus speaking. This is just Mark putting words into Jesus' mouth because this isn't the Jesus I like. Or more honestly, this isn't Jesus because I just don't like this version of Jesus. So I'll I'll stick to the version of Jesus I like. Thank you very much. There was a a skeptical scholarly movement uh, in the 80s and 90s called the Jesus Seminar. And their aim, uh, 150 scholars or so, is to discover the the most authentic, truly historical version of Jesus. And, And as you can tell, I think it was a very flawed movement. But they could conclude... After stripping away the Gospels, the most authentic statements of Jesus revealed that he was a failed end times preacher. What does that mean? They believed that the most genuine statements of Jesus were the ones like the ones we're reading right now. The most skeptical scholars out there towards the Gospels say, if you want to know the authentic Jesus, it's statements like this. That would be their absolute maximum. And for us, obviously, it's a minimum. This isn't the whole picture of who Jesus is, but it is certainly an authentic picture of who Jesus is. And he's speaking here, and he says, your thoughts and your actions, they're evil, and they originate from within, not just the bad influences out there. And you might look at this list, and you say, okay, look, murder, sure." Theft, deceit, slander, being intentionally wicked. Uh, Sure, like these are not good things. But the rest, that's just repressive. It's just behind the times. We know better now. Take coveting, envy, pride, foolishness. Yeah, like imperfections, sure. But evils? How does acting foolishly make you evil? How does comparing ourselves to others or thinking too highly of ourselves make us evil? But maybe the problem is we have a mistaken notion of evil. In the same way that darkness is the absent of, absence of light, evil is the absence of goodness. Or take sensuality, which just means unrestrained indulgence. You're like, what's evil? What is evil about binge-watching Netflix for like eight hours? What's evil about that? What's evil about overindulging in food? What's evil about enjoying the good things in life to excess. You know, everything in moderation, even moderation, they say. But we're not talking about just enjoying good things, are we? We're talking about overindulging. We're talking about going beyond what is appropriate. We're talking about taking a good thing and misusing its purposes and distorting it to the fact that it's no longer a good thing at all. But of course, to us, the most repressive comment to us is when Jesus says, sexual immorality is evil. Sexual immorality and adultery is evil. The Greek word for sexual immorality is just this blanket statement word. It refers to every sexual act you can conceive of outside of marriage. Everything. Everything. The pornography and masturbation habits that both men and women in this room face Uh, The sexual boundaries that we constantly push. I love it when I'm counseling couples and they say, you know, like, what can we get away with? That's just the wrong question. Like, don't ask, like, you know, like, handjobs. They're cool with God, right? Like, it's just the wrong question. We don't ask how much can we get away with. We got to ask what's honoring to God? What does he desire for our lives? What gives him the most beauty and glory? And what's for our good? Everything he's saying, the, the serial monogamy, like, yeah, I don't sleep around, but I, I just go from like two to three-year relationship to two to three-year relationship to two to three-year relationship. The one night stands, everything. He says, it's all evil. We don't like that. That is repressive. We don't, we don't see it that way anymore. Whatever your sexual preference may be, whatever, whatever your sexual appetite may be, expressing it is just part of being a liberated person. That's what we're told. We would even say it's part of being a healthy person, that you would be an unhealthy person to uh, practice monogamy, because humans just weren't made that way. You would be an unhealthy person not to express your sexual desires, because they have been lifted up in our culture to become a primary identity. Roger and I were bored one day in the office, and we calculated how much time uh, you actually spent having sex if you're married and you have a healthy sex life. Uh, Why we do these things, I don't know, but... If you had sex seven days a week, one hour a day, which that would be really impressive. And if, if that's you, good on you. But that, just waking life, that would only be 5% of your waking life. Now, if you had sex based on the national averages of how many times married people have sex, which I won't tell you, you can find that out when you get married, it would be 2% of your waking life. So we're saying if you can't, Live out and express two to five percent of your waking life, you will be devoid of meaning. You will be truncating a major part of your identity. You won't be able to have a satisfied life. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't get me wrong. Sex is a good and beautiful thing, it is meant to bless us and to be enjoyed. It can bring people together, and it is most fully enjoyed in the context of a covenant marriage. But Jesus says when we distort that, it's evil. It's evil. Even adultery has been stopped seeing as evil. Because we find ways to justify the act. We say, well, they were unhappy. It's for the best. Or, or, or whatever. We just come up with the reasons. We don't see it as evil. We just see it as imperfect. And look, I'm not here to judge you guys. I'm not here to say uh, you're evil. I'm just here to tell you that Jesus says you're evil. And I'm evil. We all struggle with this, okay? So take a breath, deep breath with me. I'm not pointing at any single one of you. I'm not thinking of your life and trying to call you out. I'm pointing at all of us and saying this is, this is the word. This is what it's telling us. Evil comes out of our hearts. And it takes expression in all these different ways. You can't escape this list. Just to be honest, like envy. Like I would love for all these seats to be filled right now. And I look at, you know, like First Baptist or Coastal or Westside and I'm friends with all those pastors and I love them. I'd be like, yo, just lend me like 20 people. It's envy and it's not healthy because we want to form people. We don't want to just fill seats. And it's the same for them too, but envy, like it's sin, man. It's just a mess. Now, here's what I want to suggest. No matter how much we move the moral boundaries around, no matter how much we try to adjust what is and isn't acceptable or appropriate, we can't remove this sense that we carry, a sense that these things just don't quite fit. They don't quite fulfill a sense, an inclination, that perhaps they really do make us unfit before God. And so we've spent so much time redefining what these things really are that we no longer know what to call it. And so we call it imperfections, but it doesn't quite fit, does it? There's a sense. There's something here. There's a great uh, kids program downtown called Jump Gymnastics. It's essentially a giant play area for kids. Uh, this is a picture of it. Uh, giant trampoli- trampolines and, and mats and gymnastic bars. You name it, a ball pit. And a few months ago, Julia and I took Ansley there for the first time. And Maggie was strapped to Julia. And Ansley was just having a grand time. And uh, she especially, like, loved the ball pit, but especially loved this massive trampoline. Uh, But she had a rather tough time with the rules of the trampoline. Only one child could bounce at a time. And then she also had a tough time waiting her turn. You know, common problem for her age, you know, one person at a time. And she had a tough time sharing, tough time waiting. And she did what anyone her age would do. She had an epic meltdown. I'm just talking full-on meltdown. And so I scoop her up, and I'm trying to console her. I'm wiping away Her crocodile tears. I'm saying, you know, it's okay. Let's just take a deep breath. Let's talk about this. Let's talk it through. It's not a big deal. And then I felt it. She was potty training, and she just got so upset that she forgot she was potty training. And she just peed uh, all down my side, like soaking wet, and uh, my entire left side of the body. Now, fortunately, we're prepared parents. We had brought a change of clothes for Ansley in case this happened. We tidied her up, sent her on her way. But the foresight stopped there. Uh, I didn't have a change of clothes. (laughs) So for the next, I'm not kidding, 45 minutes, I had to grin and bear it because I can't take her away from the most epic play zone ever. I don't know if you've ever tried to mask being soaked in urine, Uh, (laughs) but it is not an easy thing to do. And here's the thing. I loathe, it's a tactile thing for me. Like, I hate wearing wet clothing. Like, if I go to a pool, I have to change as soon as I'm out of the pool. It's just a weird tactile thing for me. And so here I am, playing with Ansley, trying to have fun, surrounded by adults who are trying to like, talk to me and kind of like, looking at me and like, trying to figure out what's going on and trying to play it cool like, oh, I'm not half-soaked in urine, I'm just a normal person. Uh, and then this like, growing tactile repulsion. But after 45 minutes, something interesting happened. I didn't dry, I was too wet, uh, but I got used to it. The repulsion dissipated. And I stopped noticing the smell We didn't even immediately rush home. Yes, I commented that I would prefer to get home quicker. But we walked leisurely. We stopped at a little corner market to buy some food. Meanwhile, just totally soaked in urine. By my own standards. Totally unfit to be in public. Awful experience. Don't want to repeat it. Uh, Maggie, listen up. Uh, But... This was what the reality was. So what did I do? I just changed my standards. I changed the settings. You see, we have a strange knack as people of getting used to uncleanliness. It stops being repulsive. It just becomes a dull sensation. We sense, but we can't fully describe what's going on. But here's what we are sensing. We are soaked through and through, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. And for some of us in this room, that might be loud and clear. And you you feel it and you get it. But for many of us, we become so accustomed to this uncleanliness, this sense, uh, our own evil, that it's, it's only a sense. But it's there. It's there. And it starts within and it comes out of our hearts. And so after Jesus has taught everyone this, the disciples are alone with him. They get some downtime with him. And so they ask. Jesus. What was that parable all about? Verses 18 to 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? The original language is pretty crass. Jesus says it doesn't enter his heart or his stomach but it goes into the latrine, an outdoor bathroom. Jesus is talking about going to the bathroom. You can't deal with the heart from the outside in because what you ingest will just end up in the toilet. He's saying that when you try to take care of your uncleanliness from the outside in, no matter what it is you're doing to try to clean up your inner reality, it's all gonna end up in the toilet. They won't get to the root issue. You can't deal with the heart by what you eat or by what you do. And so I think this invites us to consider a few of the ways that we try to deal with our uncleanliness. If like the Pharisees, we think that we're unclean from the outside in and we deal with it from the outside in, what happens? We become rule keepers. Look, if I just do the right things, if I just keep all the right rules, if I pray enough and read my Bible enough, if I am nice enough, if I hold the door enough, if I do all these things by my standards of what constitutes a good person, then I will be clean because I can control my sin. It's outside in, therefore, with the right actions, I can keep myself clean. The technical term for that is a legalist. You become a rule keeper. And your sense of worth and identity is tied to how well you are performing at the various tasks you ascribe importance. But what if we're uh, defiled from the outside in? We think that, but we try to deal with it from the inside out. What happens then? Well, you you develop an escapist mentality, don't you? The world out there is bad, so I need to cultivate an inner reality that is good. What happens? You become judgmental. Well, man, I I can't associate with those people. I'm I'm better than those people. They're unclean. I, I have to keep myself undefiled. There's some truth in that, but there's totally wrong. Or uh, the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, where the body is just this bad thing. We're tainted, and we just have to focus on the spiritual realm. You know, let's just cultivate our spiritual lives and remain as separated from the world as possible. But what happens? It's tiring. It's tiring, and it's isolating. Because you're never quite sure if you're doing enough. Same problem. Now if we think we're defiled from the inside out like Jesus teaches but we try to remedy it with outside in actions alone what happens you know internally you're unclean and so you try to do all these things to clean you up what happens you can't do it you can't do it and you know it and so you feel shame you feel like something is wrong with you you feel guilty Because you're always aware of how you're never good enough. And no matter what you seem to do, it doesn't seem to change this inner uncleanliness that you face. So what happens over time? Well, you can become prone to addiction, or you can numb out, or you can just avoid it altogether and just not think about these things anymore. And so what is the remedy? For unclean from the inside out, what is the remedy? What do we do? We invite Jesus into our lives to clean us from the inside out because only Christ has the hands to shape and mold the human heart. So look at verse 19 again. Mark adds some commentary, and he, he does this very rarely in his gospel. So when Mark says something, it means listen up. This is important. Verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Sermon done. That's the solution. Now you might be scratching your head. How does this help us? It's good news for two reasons. First, we can eat bacon. Heaven opened up, again, raining bacon. Pigs are clean, you can eat bacon. This is good news. Second, it's Father's Day, I get one bad dad joke. Uh, Second, Jesus didn't just say all foods are now clean. He declared all foods clean. How can he do that? We looked at this last week. Jesus has authority over scripture, but he He doesn't abolish scripture. He fulfills scripture. He doesn't throw away parts of scripture. He fulfills their intent. He's saying that all of the cleanliness laws are fulfilled in him. Therefore, he can declare all foods clean because you don't have to clean yourself up anymore to enter into God's presence to receive his cleansing because God is with you and he is fulfilling those laws and he will clean you from the inside out so that you will be fit to enter the presence of God. Jesus cleanses us from the inside out. He's fulfilling the intent of the laws. This is the Galileo moment. This is the world altering truth for an entire religion that was based upon cleanliness. Why should we trust what Jesus has to say? Why can we trust his authority? Uh, Walter Wangerin, Jr., uh, he was an American author, educator. I think he's still alive, actually. Uh, And and he won a ton of awards for his work. uh, But his most powerful work, in my opinion, is Ragman and Other Cries of Faith. he has this short story called The Ragman. And I want to read the whole story this morning, which is a little unusual uh, for us. It's a little longer than most things I read, so I'll try to do a good job. But I want you to enter into this story with me, because I believe it articulates the inside-out cleansing, the solution to inside-out defilement. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes both bright and new. and He was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags, rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself. For the man stood six feet four and his arms were like tree limbs hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon, the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, signing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made me sad. Her shoulders shook, her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then, as, she began to pull, then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face. Then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself. And I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head, the bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work, he asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket. Flat, the cuff stuffed into his pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket, I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it round himself. Before the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I need to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and I waited to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill, then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked card and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light, slammed against my sour face. And I blinked, and I looked, and I saw first wonder of all. There was the rag man folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead but alive. And besides that, healthy There was no sign of sorrow or age and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembled for all that I had seen. I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. And he dressed me. My Lord, He put new rags on me, and I'm a wonder beside Him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Jesus is our ragman. Have you discovered this truth? That we can't clean ourselves? That no matter how hard you try, you can't clean yourself? Have you discovered the truth that Jesus says, give me that? Give me that. Let me take that. And here, I'll give you new clothes. Give me that unrighteousness, and I'll give you my righteousness. Give me your sin, and I'll take it upon my body and give you my sinlessness. Give me all that makes you unfit before my Father, and I'll become unfit before my Father on the tree and make you fit and clean to stand before Him. Only Jesus can clean us from the inside out because only Jesus can take all that makes us unclean upon himself and become our substitute and die to cleanse us, to cleanse us. And only Jesus can make us fit before God. Only Jesus can make us whiter than snow. Only in him will your sins be remembered no more. And only in him will you be your most authentic self. In order to do that, you have to do the most vulnerable thing you can do. You have to ask him to clean you from the inside out. You have to undress before him and say, dress me. Dress me, Jesus. That our Lord Jesus will not turn you away. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter whether you've walked with him for a while and left and want to come back, no matter if you're in the, the habits that you're in right now, even last night. Jesus doesn't work with some future version of yourself. He doesn't work with some cleaned up, self-cleaned version of yourself. He works with the unfit version of yourself, the unclean version of yourself. And he says, I love you. So this morning, have, have you ever asked him to dress you? And if you feel like you're falling short, ask him to dress you again.